Section number two of the Black Cat, volume one, number five, February 1896. This is a LibreVox recording. All LibreVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibreVox.org. Recording by Julie Burks. The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 5, February 1896, Section 2, Tang Yu, by Lawrence E. Adams. Among the most interesting souvenirs that Marston, the naval officer, brought from the Orient was a curious portrait, evidently the work of a native artist, painted in brilliant colors on a panel of foreign wood. More striking than the workmanship of the portrait, however, was its subject, a small Chinese boy, apparently not more than ten or twelve years of age, but wearing the uniform of a high Japanese naval officer and adorned with a whole string of jeweled decorations. Here is the history of the portrait. When the Japanese flagship steamed out of the harbor of Canton on the day that war was formally declared between Japan and China, it carried one human whose name was not on the ship's rolls, and he belonged to the enemy. He became a passenger under the following circumstances. Just before the ship weighed anchor, a small steam launch was sent back for the commander and superior officers who had been detained until late. Among these officers were three Americans, all graduates of the Annapolis Academy, who had been engaged by the Japanese government as advisors during the coming hostilities. As the little launch wormed its way through the maze of picturesque craft and sampans, the curious little Chinese houseboats, which crowded the bay, the eyes of the American officers were riveted by a curious sight. To the top of a wooden stake to which a sampan was moored, a little Chinese boy clung, swaying to and fro, eyeing delightedly the steam launch as it shot through the water. In his anxiety to see the fun, however, he had disregarded the weakness of this reed-like support which, when a passing sampan collided with it, suddenly broke off short, plunging the little chap into the water. At first the launch's passengers paid slight attention to the accident. Knowing that these little natives are as much at home in the water as on shore, indifference, however, gave way to concern when the child's shrill cry for help rang through the air, followed by the mad efforts of every sampan man within sight to get away from the drowning boy instead of to him. It was now evident that the little fellow had become entangled in a floating coil of rope and that his drowning was a matter of a few seconds. Yet not one of the Chinese boatmen but watched from a distance, and in silence, the small hero's frantic struggles for life. Indeed, the little Mongolian was already disappearing in the waters of the bay when the steam launch, at the signal of the commander, veered in its course, and a strong arm snatched the little body from the waves. As for the sampan men, they watched the rescue with cries of amazement. This was because of the curious law existing in certain provinces of China that whosoever saves a life, the rescued one may lawfully look to the rescuer for support forever after. It is plain that this barbaric edict virtually puts a premium on death, but the explanation lies in the fatalistic religion, 
which holds that whenever a man falls into peril, it is by the express wish and will of the gods, and that to rescue him is to obstruct their just decrees. Meantime, the officers, who had arrived on shipboard with their protégé before it occurred to them to plan for his disposal, were examining their find as though he had been a new and curious toy. To send him back to shore was impossible, as they were already steaming out of the harbor. The only course, then, was to keep him on board, at least during the voyage to Japan, a plan rendered all the easier by the fact that the little heathen was, according to his broken Japanese, both homeless and friendless. But if the boy had seemed a nuisance in prospect, he was anything but that in reality. Shrewd as any bowery ragamuffin, the little fellow's alert ways and quick wits were the unfailing delight of the three American officers. More imitative even than the Japanese, he picked up their language and customs with such incredible ease that in a few days he was more Japanese than any subject of the Mikado. Indeed, before many weeks had passed, the entire crew was accustomed to the curious spectacle of one of the enemy enjoying the most marked attention and hospitality that the ship could afford. But besides his imitativeness and shrewdness, the little Mongolian had one accomplishment that gained the awestruck admiration of his Oriental friends. That was the power of discovering objects at incredible distances as easily by night as by day, a power due partly to inheritance and partly to his profession. The lad was an interesting specimen of the Oriental class of beings known as rat-catchers. This means more than the word implies. They are not rat-catchers by vocation alone, but, strangely enough, they are born to the trade. In addition to many other talents which he had inherited from a long line of rat-catching ancestry, little Tang Yu, the rat, as the boy was called, had the power of seeing his way clearly in almost the dead blackness of night. Sometimes, indeed, it seemed as though he was endowed with a sixth sense in this matter, being able to walk straight into a dungeon-like room and to bring forth any object without the least hesitancy. Courage also he had developed to a rare degree, for the rats in the docks of China and in the underground passages from warehouse cellar to cellar and sewer to sewer, where he plied his trade, are the fattest and most savage of the rodent tribe the world over, so large indeed that the skins of two of them will make a pair of gloves, and the carcass will supply a family with dried filet de rodin for a week. These rat-catchers spend days and weeks in the underground passages, and day and night are almost the same to them. Now that he could no longer exercise his strange gift in his accustomed way, Tang Yu would often amuse himself by standing for hours on the deck, peering out through the mist or the darkness, in search of things hidden to common eyes. Indeed, among the Americans, he soon became known as the Kid with the Telescopic Eye, while the commander, on various occasions, allowed him to accompany the men in the lookout where he discovered objects often in advance of the field-glass. Even the dark waters of the ocean were not proof against the vision of the little heathen, whose bright eyes would detect curious fish as they swam around the ship many feet below the surface. 
while a fog that blinded the ordinary eye proved no obstacle to his keen sight. Before long, everyone came to the conclusion that a boy whose eye was equal to a combined field glass and searchlight was a valuable addition to a modern warship, and on more than one occasion during the months of the war, the little Chinaman's discernment was appealed to as gravely as though he had been thirty years old and a Japanese officer instead of a ten-year-old Chinaman. On one occasion, indeed, Tang Yu's sixth sense made him, for five minutes, the ship's commander. It was late in the evening before the memorable engagement of Port Arthur, the flagship which, having passed unscathed through months of war, had been recently ordered to the stronghold, had just anchored in the harbor, and preparations were making for the night's defense. The torpedo net had not yet been lowered, but the whole ship resounded with the hustle and hurry of preparations for what everyone felt would be the most decisive battle of the war. Meantime, Tang Yu stood alone near the bow, peering out through the darkness, as was his custom upon arriving in a strange place, in search of some new and interesting sight. Suddenly, above the confusion, there rang out a shrill little scream, and Tang Yu, with his eyes bulging from his head, rushed towards the admiral, pointing out to sea, frantically shrieked, Torpedo! Torpedo! Instantly, every eye followed the direction of the tiny finger. The sea looked unruffled. Not a soul on the deck, even by straining his vision to the utmost, could verify Tang Yu's cry. Yet so accustomed had they become to relying upon the little fellow's keen sight that the admiral gave instant orders to lower the net. In a moment there was a sound of hurrying feet, a hundred hands were raised to the ropes, and the great net fell into place. Before the splash of the falling net had died away, there was a thundering explosion, and a tremendous upheaval of water, like that of a mighty geyser, shook the huge ship from bow to stern. It was indeed a torpedo that Tang Yu's keen eyes had detected far away through the approaching night. But swiftly as it came, the boy's marvelous vision had been swifter. The well-aimed missile of destruction that in a moment more would have destroyed the flower of the Japanese navy had, in coming in contact with the netting, exploded harmlessly, flooding the deck with water. The great warship, with over three hundred souls, had been saved from annihilation, and by one of the enemy. A few months later, when Tang Yu's exploit was brought to the notice of the Mikado, that dignitary conferred upon the little Chinese rat-catcher the rank of honorary admiral in the Japanese navy. And it was in this way that a heathen nation furnished the youngest naval hero in existence. End of section 2